This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, seeing is how we're talking about two movies that have to do with investigation, and one of them is a movie about journalism. I was going to try to kick off this episode with a little bit of pattern, a la, I don't know, His Girl Friday, and then I realized I just can't talk that fast. I do not possess the verbal capabilities to even approach the uh, velocity that the dialogue in that movie gets. So better not to even try. We'll just, just the facts, man, is the approach that we're going to take in this week's episode. We will leave the rapid fire dialogue to the professionals. But for this week's episode, we are going to be discussing She Said, which is out this Friday. We're also going to be going over Sarah's pick for the watch list segment. That would be Sandy Tan's documentary, Shirkers. Looking forward to that one as well. On episode 358 of Seeing and Believing. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Let's interrogate the whole system. My name is Jody Cantor. I'm an investigative reporter for the New York Times. What have you got? I was told that the wrongdoing in Hollywood is overwhelming. What is it exactly that we're looking at here? These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings. I can still see the floor plan. He kept trying to touch me. I asked him to leave me alone. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. We're from the New York Times. I believe he used to work for Harvey Weinstein. Yes, we're here on episode 358 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, we've already had a couple of false starts to the the recording of this episode. So needless to say, I'm no Cary Grant in His Girl Friday. (laughs) It's a testament to the fact that we should probably stick to podcasts maybe and not to screwball comedy. But I'm right there with you. I'm I'm not as quick thinking as Rosalind Russell. Yeah, not not all the way there. We are going to be talking about journalists, though. We're going to pay the poor tribute that we can to the titans of the screen in that subgenre. We're going to be talking about shirkers in the watchlist segment, but for now we're going to turn our attention to the next in the grand tradition of American movies about journalists chasing the big scoop. That is uh, She Said, directed by Maria Schrader, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who together broke the story about Harvey Weinstein's multitude of crimes and offenses, a story that helped propel the Me Too movement, shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood, and altered American culture forever. So obviously the shadow of Harvey Weinstein looms particularly large over the film industry in general. So it's been something that... uh, people in the industry and people who talk about the industry have had to reckon with for a long time. So, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah, this has been something obviously that both of us have had to grapple with, but I'm curious to get the just conversation started. Um, how does this fit into the grand tradition of reporters chasing the the big story that has the potential to change the nation, if not the world? Mm, yeah. I mean, 
I think I was a little bit concerned going into this because I was worried that this movie was going to be sort of Hollywood patting itself on the back with we tracked this guy down and we got him and therefore all of our <laughs> problems are solved. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. But um, I think it helps that the grand tradition of journalism movies seems to be a little bit more of we got the story out and now we're going to wait for the verdict of the people and, and popular opinion. You know, you have all the president's men where you have Woodard and Bernstein just typing away furiously while Nixon's still talking on the television. And then you find out that Nixon didn't resign until years after this story broke. You have other movies like Spotlight, which I think this movie is going to be compared to quite a lot, where you have the reporters trying to assemble the story and get away to make it make sense and to make sense of the world through this story. And then the story is out there and then you still have to grapple with the consequences even later. And especially with stories like Spotlight and She Said, these are so fresh in our minds, like the fallout is still happening today. So it's kind of impossible to say that, you know, we did it mission accomplished um, because it only just happened a few years ago. And so this kind of feels like it's on that same cutting edge of telling a news story and bringing it sort of back into the public attention, even though it was really quite recently that the story broke. Um, and at the same time, kind of dramatizing it and making it easy to understand for people who may not necessarily have known the ins and outs of what was going on or who may have glanced at the New York Times headline but hadn't read the full article. Um, I think it fits within that tradition pretty well. I do wonder about the execution a little bit, though. It kind of feels as though she said is more interested in a story about solidarity between women than it is in the journalistic process and in the investigative process. So I'll be curious to know what you thought about that. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, my, my impression of it was almost the opposite, which hmm. was which was uh, that uh, I, I'm like you and I think it's, it's a laudable movie. I don't think it's an entirely successful movie. Hmm. And for me... Um, Thinking about other journalistic movies, I th even though she said kind of follows in their footsteps and kind of you know and in having an intense focus on process, um, being very not not so much about having kind of like grand courtroom scenes like a legal drama, but just kind of being about reporters pounding the pavement, getting the getting the sources, you know, writing the story, going through editing, all that stuff. Um, is happening in this movie too, but it doesn't have the same, it doesn't land with the same force hmm. that its predecessors do. And for me, I was wondering if that's because it's not so much about the process as it is about the details of the story itself. Hmm. There's a lot of time spent in, she said, um, going over the specifics of the Weinstein case. We hear various sources testimony at length mm -hmm. uh, in, in sometimes a uh, very disturbing detail. Mm -hmm. um, we get a lot of scenes of Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan uh, as these two reporters sort of recapping their findings for their editors. Um, so the facts of the case are abundantly clear, but I feel like the movie's focus is, in, is on the facts more so than on the 
the experience of chasing those down and the 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 weight of that uh process on these two reporters hmm. we get scenes here and there where they they kind of talk about how you know the 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 effect it's having on them to be chasing the story while they're you know juggling personal lives they're both mothers they're both um trying to navigate just various you know everyday troubles anyone does mm-hmm. um but i i feel like the movie's emphasis isn't on that and it's more on the specific facts of you know what weinstein did where he did it and who he did it to and that seems a little bit backwards to me i feel i think something like spotlight did have time for us to consider the horror of the crimes that were committed but i felt like the the focus was more on this group of reporters slowly kind of having a dawning realization of just how big the story was just how bad the story was Mm -hmm. and that kind of gave the audience a way into the story to have it illuminated from a different angle rather than just retelling the facts which especially for something like the weinstein story is is so fresh in our minds that i don't know how illuminating that is uh for the average viewer yeah that's one of the questions that i think i had coming out of this movie was who precisely this movie is is for so for me i think i was a little bit less interested in the process and in the recapping of the details and in the way that the movie kind of draws connective tissue between both of these female reporters and the troubles that they deal with both professionally and personally in their lives. One of them is dealing with postpartum depression near the beginning of the movie. Um, And then the other is is trying to juggle, you know, raising two children and and a, a healthy and happy partnership with her husband as well. And, um, I think the movie does a a pretty decent job of showing these things as this is just a part of what it is like to be a woman in the United States. And I think there are bits and pieces of the movie trying to draw that kind of same, like almost a, a universal experience of what it is to be a woman for all of the women within the movie, both those who are telling the journalists their stories and then the journalists themselves and their editors. Um, I don't quite know how well that works for me because a lot of that feels kind of obvious to me, particularly as a young woman who lives in the United States. Like a lot of these stories and experiences are things that like we just sort of take for granted. And I do appreciate that the movie is willing to go out of its way to say this journalist is dealing with something like postpartum depression and actually names it and doesn't just say, oh, something's wrong with her. Like she must be crazy. But at the same time, it almost feels as though the movie is paying lip service to this idea that there are things that women deal with that men don't always have to deal with in everyday social life in the United States. Um, I think it works best when the movie gets very specific and gets into specific instances. So there's a scene where Jody and Megan are sitting down at a bar And the two of them are having a conversation about their investigation. And one of the other bar patrons comes over with like a half finished glass in his hand and he starts hassling both of them. And um, 
Megan Tui tells him first, like fairly politely, like we're having a conversation, like we're not interested. And then he gets more and more aggressive and she returns that aggression in kind and yells at him repeatedly to leave the two of them alone in no uncertain terms. And the specificity of the way with which she handled that situation, I think, told me a lot about who she was as a person. And it also made it abundantly clear that this is something that she's dealt with before. She knows how to deal with it. And she's not going to deal with it in the exact same way that Jody would deal with it because the two of them are seated at the same table and they have very different reactions to the encounter. And so the, the movie, I think, attempts to get at some of those levels of specificity. But I think where it falters is in repeating the stories of the women who have stories about Harvey Weinstein, like in very intense detail in a way that didn't really feel like it necessarily served the story of she said as a whole. It kind of felt as though the movie was just trying to dig into all of this is awful. So we're going to show you all of the awfulness, if that makes sense. Well, it feels like the the film was in some ways trying to recreate the effects that reading these articles for the very first time would have had just the the mm -hmm. shock of of just how awful it was mm -hmm. um and not not knowing about it and then reading about it and, and just realizing just how uh morally decrepit <laughs> weinstein was mm -hmm. and uh the ordeals that his various uh targets went through um but i i don't think that's very I, again i just come back to the the idea that that's not particularly illuminating in the context of this film. Mm -hmm. it, it's not necessary, I think, for the film to recount in such detail all of these things because you can just go and read the articles. Like mm -hmm. the, you, you can Wikipedia this stuff. Like this is not something. If if these details are in the film, they should be. You'd think that they would need to be chosen with care, and I think that that's maybe. For me, my my biggest quibble with the film is that there, the for a film like this to work, I feel like it has to be very good with well chosen details, both in the personal lives of its journalist protagonists and also with the story they're chasing. There's not enough time in a film to really go deep on both of those. Mm. And so well-chosen evocative details like the the exchange in the bar that you're talking about, which mm. is just an incandescent moment from Carrie Mulligan. I think uh, she's far and away the standout of the entire cast. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a Mulligan fanboy, so maybe that's <laughs> not no surprise to anyone to hear me say that. But I think moments like that are, are really wonderful. Um, but overall, there's it, it feels like the, the film is just recounting at length details without any judicious eye for which of them uh, increase the power of the film that we're watching and mm -hmm. which of them are important details in terms of understanding the full picture but don't contribute anything to what what is in front of us on screen. That was kind of a question that I was asking myself as I was watching the movie was this is a story with kind of a foregone conclusion. Like, we all know how this story ends. Harvey Weinstein is still in jail and is facing further charges elsewhere besides in New York. And um, I think the movie tried to get out ahead of the question of, 
is this a story that is necessary to tell by having our two protagonists kind of talk about why it's important for them to even report the story in the first place? And for me, I don't think that that justification necessarily extends to the movie itself. It kind of felt like a lot of repeating of the facts and repeating of the facts. You even see that new, same New York Times article on the screen in this movie as well as as they're reading through and fact checking like at the very end of the film. Um, and I, I don't know. I go back and forth because I, I feel like this is the kind of story where if you just push everything under the rug and you say like, we don't want to marinate in the details of the story or we don't want to repeat it because it's ugly and it's unpleasant and maybe it dredges up some nasty things for those of us who may have experienced something like that um i i get the instinct to not want to tell that story and at the same time i also get the instinct to want to say this happens to people all of the time and it's important to keep telling these stories so that we don't forget and I think the problem with this movie is not that it's trying to tell the story or trying to dramatize the unearthing of the details of the Weinstein case. I think the problem is that it just doesn't do a particularly great job of executing the why and explaining that why. And I think that if it had managed to justify its own existence a little bit better, I think I would have been a little bit more on board with it. I, I was looking for maybe a, a unified aesthetic strategy for how it presented these facts, maybe. So for for example, um, we get some of uh, th uh, the survivors' accounts uh, purely through audio. There's there's one shot where the, re the recording of an encounter with Weinstein is played over a slow shot just tracking down a, a, a hotel hallway. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, another scene where Gwyneth Paltrow is is speaking to one of the reporters, but we only see her, see her from back, I guess, because Paltrow wasn't willing to appear in person, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, uh, you know, Ashley Judd was kind of one of the first people to lead the charge against Weinstein. And she's playing herself on screen. Mm -hmm. um, other survivors are played by by actresses. Jennifer Ely, in maybe another really great performance, mm -hmm. is is a, a, a personal assistant of Weinstein's who suffered under him. Um, but so there, that's many, many different ways of portraying these various survivor stories. And it's not clear what, if any, thought was given to why the choice was made to uh, have Judd so front and center where, where Paltrow is not, or for uh, the actual recording of one encounter to be played while Jennifer Ely dramatizes and, and narrates an encounter otherwise. Um, if there's a strategy behind that, it, I can't discern it, mm -hmm. which makes the film as a whole feel like it's a collection of details but again, there's there's no unifying strategy for how they're presented to to orient us within it to give, give us a sense for why we're seeing all of this in front of us, why Schrader chose to present it to us in this way. I suspect it's because they're trying to get at each of these are, is an individual story and the story of the woman telling it. Specific. I suspect that it's um, 
because they're trying to get at the idea that each of these stories do belong to an individual woman. And so those stories would be told in different ways, perhaps. But I agree with you, it does feel a little bit disjointed. And at, at, at certain points, I couldn't tell if the story being told was being told by a woman that we had previously met in the film, or if it was somebody new whose story was just being presented to us, the audience, as just another piece of, of in the fabric of this investigation. Um, yeah, I don't know. It it feels as though, to me, the movie is really trying to put together a, a cloth of, like, a universal, like, woman experience, I think, um, through the telling of all of these different stories in slightly different ways. But again, like I'd mentioned at the top, I don't think that it quite works. And I suspect that it's because... I don't know, this feels like a very white feminist movie um, in that it kind of feels almost like a one size fits all form of feminism where you assume that if, if you're talking about a woman who has been harassed in the work, who has been harassed in the workplace, um, she's young and she's attractive and she's like in, I don't know, like a PA sort of position and that experience kind of speaks to all women's experiences and that does seem to be like the pattern that Weinstein followed but I worry about this film kind of feeling like it's trying to conflate all of these different experiences into one blanketing overarching experience that kind of pulls all of that individual that pulls all of that individuality out um, if that makes any sense at all. It, it just, it feels a little bit uniform to me, even though it's trying to tell all of these different stories in different ways. Hmm. I mean, and that's, that's an interesting perspective. It's not something that, that I had considered. I, I think that, again, there's, there's just a, a, a concern about why, why we're, why we're seeing what we're seeing in the way that we're seeing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's not so much that there's anything. The, the, the film, the filmmaking isn't bad per se, but there's something maybe a little bit perfunctory about what we're getting. Where um, the the scenes where uh, Tui and Cantor are speaking with their editors, there it's kind of like just very bland, like shot reverse shots. Uh, the, the lighting is very standard and uniform. Um, there's a scene where uh, Ely's character. Uh, receives a cancer diagnosis that is literally like five seconds, boom, you have cancer. And then it cuts away to something else, but it just feels like it, it feels like it's there to serve a particular, it's there to establish a fact and then move on. But there's not a whole lot of uh, sensitivity or innovation in the filmmaking to really bring it together as, as something beyond just a collection of facts. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of facts that just doesn't seem like it knows how to be anything more than that. Hmm. Um, you think about how a journalist has a responsibility not just to write down a list of quotations and and uh, sourced uh, facts, but also to kind of shape it. And I feel like that's me. This what this film doesn't do so much for me is it doesn't shape this material into a form that illuminates it beyond what you would get from just reading the New York Times articles themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, to go back to one of those other, you know, paragons of American journalism movies, I was thinking about um, All the President's Men, which has a lot of artistic flourishes in it that kind of 
serve that story in a way. Like there's that famous uh, split diopter shot where you have people in the background who are in focus and then Robert Redford on the phone also in focus. And it's a very subtle detail, but it's there because it helps to inform a little bit more about his character and also about the situation on the ground in the newsroom. And there isn't really all that much that's like that in this. Like you'd said, it does feel a little bit perfunctory, shot, reverse shot, just very straightforward, kind of the washed out grade tones of a lot of modern serious storytelling, I think, in the movies without doing too much to distract from those facts. And maybe that's on purpose. Maybe they're trying to be, like, my my generous read of this is they're trying to be just the facts and not too much illumination or, or um, I don't know, elaboration on that. But at the same time, it doesn't really feel as though it serves the story all too well if you're just going to present it as here's a series of the same shot over and over again and the same story over and over again without shaping it in a way that is interesting and illuminating to look at. And I don't mean to say that we should take these people's pain and turn it into like something that looks beautiful and is distracting necessarily, but I do think that it does the dis- it does a disservice to people to tell their stories in a way that feels perfunctory. And I think that that's where this movie doesn't quite hold up for me. I wonder if it's a if it's a screenwriting issue because um, I, I remember watching Spotlight and Spotlight is also very no frills. You know, there there's not a whole lot of of stylistic flourishes in Spotlight along the lines of that split diopter shot from All the President's Men mm-hmm. or those uh, when, when Spielberg cuts away in the post to shots of you know Nixon in the White House. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's nothing like that in Spotlight, and yet I remember at the end of Spotlight just feeling. S- so emotionally wrung out and genuinely angry mm-hmm. about what I had seen that it, I, I think it, it might just be a, a presentation issue where, whereas she said screenplay kind of just, it's almost like a movie entirely made of exposition, mm-hmm. which I, that's maybe a little bit more unkind than I want to be. I, I think it's, it's more than that, but it does it feel like that at times where it's the screenplay is just really trying to, rushes through a bunch of info to get us to the next payoff scene. And I I just don't think it's an effective strategy, at least not when it's uh, directed and shot in this way. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. It feels a little bit flat. And maybe again, this this gets back to my gripe about the cinematography and the blocking where everybody is just arranged on a flat plane. And there isn't really much other than just fact, 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 shot, shot, shot. And we're going to present the story in, in this particular way that feels, it feels a little bit dry, unfortunately. I, I mean, having said that, hmm. um, we haven't talked a whole lot about the performances. I already you know, made plain that I'm a big fan of Mulligan, mm-hmm. not just in this movie, but in every movie. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I do think that, and I'm curious to get your thoughts too about which performances really stood out to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved Mulligan. I really liked Andre Brower as he's as, terrific in this as uh, the two reporters editor who's just very matter of fact, very even keeled when uh, Weinstein attempts to bully them into uh, or, or browbeat them into giving something away about their sources. Uh, he's just he stonewalls them, but he does it in a very uh, it's a very satisfying performance, I guess. I, I liked him a lot. It feels good to see Harvey Weinstein get shut down for sure. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan is is fantastic in this. There's there's a, a level of, I don't know, iron that I think I've seen in her ever since I first saw her on the screen. And 
it comes out here in surprising and satisfying ways. And that's purely her performance. I really like it. I, I, I just keep coming back to that scene in that bar where she has to eventually scream at the at the guy who just won't let, let her alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a scene that we, we've already talked about why it's effective just in terms of a character building purpose. But I think Mulligan, just the... The way that she slams her hand down on the table and just just takes this guy to task mm-hmm. is so she she puts a note into her anger that makes it clear that she's used to this kind of behavior and she's used to shutting down this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. But something about where she is personally in that moment is just she can't take another second of it. Mm-hmm. And I think little grace notes like that in the performances I think do elevate the movie into into something that even if it's not wholly successful I do think that it is a movie that um you know it, it's it, it goes down for a movie about a difficult subject like this it, it does uh present itself well in, mm. in that way yeah yeah I'll agree with you there I think I'm a little bit more negative on it than you might be potentially but it I don't think that it's a bad movie I think that it's a competent movie and I kind Mm. of wish that it had been a little bit more than just a competent movie that's maybe a fair note to end things on uh (laughs) listeners if you've got a chance to see she said it is out this weekend um if you have thoughts on the way it presented this story about how it fits into this the tradition of journalism movies uh we'd love to hear your thoughts of course you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod you can always uh write us a physical letter and even though you don't have our snail mail addresses you can maybe i don't know scan the image and send a pdf to us uh, <laughs> somehow uh we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts in any form don't go anywhere we're going to be talking about shirkers up in the watchlist segment this episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show, of course, where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, you, since we are talking about journalism movies so much in this episode, you mm-hmm. posed a question along those lines on Twitter for all of our listeners out there. Yeah, I wanted to know, do you have a favorite movie, fiction or documentary, about investigating a story? And this will tie a little bit into our Shirkers discussion a little bit later on, I think. Um, but we heard back from Christy Olson, who said, cheating a bit here because it's a miniseries, but Unbelievable on Netflix is probably my favorite. It's a fictionalized account of true events and topically similar to She Said. 
Also, as an interesting side note, one of the lead detectives is the closest I've ever felt to having representation of my particular Christian faith tradition in TV or film. And uh, Christy, I really appreciate that you mentioned Unbelievable, because as we always say at the top of the podcast, we are a film and television podcast, although we don't always talk about TV. <laughs> so thank you for bringing that one in. Um, I think it totally counts. Yeah, it totally counts. No, no cheating involved. Uh, Sarah, did you have a, your own kind of pick for a movie that would fit into you know, your favorite of the genre, subgenre? I mean, I'm always a sucker for all the President's Men. I think it's a fantastic movie. I also really like the movie that I brought to our watch list segment. So I'll be curious to know what you think about it. I'm looking forward to talking about that one as well, actually. Um, you know, when I was a, a guest on a Steve Norton's Screenfish podcast a, a while back, the, the question was, you know, what's your comfort food movie mm. and the movie i settled on was actually a, a journalism movie uh shattered glass mm. uh which lots of reasons i love it it is a movie about chasing a big story although it's a different kind of big story than mm. you often see in these um and it's also a movie where an editor is the hero and <laughs> you don't get too many of those and as an editor myself you know i just gotta like hold on to them when i face them <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, thanks for uh, writing in, Christy, and letting us know your thoughts about Unbelievable. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out. Maybe I'm intrigued by your description of it. And of course, we do love to hear from everyone out there uh, on your thoughts about movies. That's a great way that you help support the podcast. It helps keep us going to know that you know there are people out there listening uh, who love movies as much as we do and love talking about them mm -hmm. as much as we do. Uh, another way you can support the podcast is, of course by going over and checking out our Patreon campaign. If you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can learn about uh, ways you can support us financially by pledging as low as $3 a month, going all the way up to $25 a month. The $10 a month level is pretty popular with a lot of our, our patrons. This, of course, gets you the, the nice little perk of being able to pick one movie every year that we have to watch and review on the air. So you can be as cheeky with that as you want or as sincere with that as you want. Uh, earlier this month, we reviewed a Patreon pick for our bonus episode. We talked about Agnes. So uh, that's something that we love to do. And uh, it's a way that you can both uh, get a little bit of your own cinematic taste on seeing and believing and mm -hmm. also support us financially. So everyone wins. So yeah, check out our Patreon campaign. We really appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So we're here in the watch list segment, and like you mentioned, Sarah, we're really looking forward to talking about your pick for this week's discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, in case any of you listeners are new to this segment, this is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then discuss it together. So Sarah, your pick for this week was Sandy Tan's 2018 Netflix documentary, Shirkers. Mm -hmm. This documentary retraces the history of the indie film that Tan made as a student in Singapore. This ambitious film was to be her big artistic announcement to the world. Uh, her first feature film ever that she wrote and, and drew her friends into making with her. Instead, the film ended up lost, 
stolen, and possibly destroyed by the older man Tan collaborated with to make it. So, Sarah, uh, there's some tie-ins here, but I'm curious to get the full picture of why you picked this film to pair with She Said this week. Yeah, um, I was interested in making a pairing that was kind of like a, you know, believe women pairing at the risk of sounding glib, but also didn't want to boil it just down to... I don't know, a glib like slogan or anything like that. I was really interested in movies that are about the ways that women are shut out of the film industry, intentionally or unintentionally, and the ways that they are made to feel unwelcome in this space. And I thought that Shirkers would be a pretty solid pairing with She Said, specifically because it's not really about the same kind of story that She Said is about. It's also a very different way of excavating the motivational factors behind victimizing younger women. Um, Shirkers is about interrogating structures of power, which she said is in a way, and, and a lot of the editors actually repeatedly remind their writers that that's what they're doing, is that they are trying to interrogate the structure of power in Hollywood. But Shirkers is interested in interrogating who these people were back in 1992 when they first made the student film, and then also interrogating the people that they thought they were working with at the time, and then also trying to figure out the motivating factors behind why someone would go to such lengths to help a young student finance and shoot her own first film and then just abscond with the film for 25 years, just straight up disappear off the face of the earth with it. And I think one of the things that I really love about Shirkers is that this isn't just Sandy Tan saying, this man wronged me and I'm going to tell you exactly why and how he's wrong. I think that she does a really good job of explaining the situation and the context in which she grew up and in which she was approaching art. And then also deconstructing who she thought she was at the time as being kind of a rebel who was against the establishment, which she certainly was but also being willing to interrogate who she was and why she was motivated to make the art that she made. She she isn't flattering herself here with this self-portrait of herself in the past. Um, and I really appreciate that she's willing to tell this story in a way that feels on its surface very straightforward, but is also focused on going into the depths and the motivations behind why this story ever even happened in the first place, and then also giving voice to her friends who helped her out with this too. This isn't just her making a a movie about a movie that she had made in the past. This is her acknowledging that movies aren't made in a vacuum by just one person. They're made by a whole group of people and everybody else was also hurt by the events of shooting the original Shirkers film. So that's a lot. It's a lot more complex than it looks like it is on its face. And that's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much. So I'm curious to know how you felt about it. That's a really good summation of the film. I think you you nail how it's kind of a, a two-pronged approach. It both interrogates how um, you know various power structures uh, conspire intentionally or not mm-hmm. to... Um, suppress certain voices within the industry it also interrogates the 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 auteur theory the idea that like the director is the grand visionary and you know any collaborators are sort of like they're they're kind of you know they they they're along for the ride but this film of course the director is the guy who eventually 
makes off with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the what we might think of as the primary creative voice behind the project, Tan herself, she opens up the, the, the film to say, no, everyone around me was integral to getting this, this film shot. And at the end, uh, she, she valorizes them rather than herself. Mm-hmm. And I think I really appreciated that. Even more than that, though, um, I, I like this film a lot, by the way. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, even beyond that, I, I liked how this film was more or less a ghost story. Mm. I appreciated how the the story of the mysterious disappearance of shirkers felt like um a, a haunting like she was she was chasing a ghost mm. the the ghost of of the film that uh disappeared or died she's not sure which until the end of the film when its eventual fate is revealed mm-hmm. um but throughout the entire picture the audience is brought along as we kind of like look at the footage that um, that was obtained of of the shoot and just kind of watch little snippets of it and see the creative spark behind it, but know that it never really reached the form that she intended for it. Mm-hmm. And and how it not not only that, but also in the location shooting that was captured there, it captures the ghost of a previous era in Singapore. Mm-hmm. She talks at length about how there are aspects of Singapore that are captured in her film that are just gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, that just you you can't find it anymore, and that too feels kind of like a ghost story. Like there are all these these ghosts kind of hanging over this this documentary, and we get to kind of follow Tan as she hunts them and lays some of them to rest and makes her peace with others of them and. I don't know. I, I, I find that elegiac tone to just be really engaging about the film. And it's, I mean, you say elegiac, but it's also really funny and also really irreverent at the same time, which I think is is fitting with Sandy Tan's background as kind of a, a punk rogue uh, film critic in Singapore. Um, and I really appreciate that she does a good job without putting too fine a point on it about the artistic climate that she grew up in in Singapore so she she tells us just enough to understand that a lot of the things that we would have considered to be very accessible or mainstream in the United States were much harder for her to get a hold of too and she still has some interesting and like a little bit more outre tastes for a 14 year old she mentions having to pirate a copy of David Lynch's Blue Velvet for example which is something that I think Film circles kind of take for granted, but not everybody would necessarily have have known or been interested in that movie at the time. So she's interested in looking for art and for stories that are kind of outside of the mainstream that challenge that idea of the mainstream and of, um, you know, happy, established like wealth and, and class in ways that I find super interesting. And then she goes so far as to not only rebel against images of um i don't know typical like aspirational stories but also to rebel against the counterculture that was also rebelling against them at the time so she talks about writing a zine that was kind of against the anti-establishment like film critics who were in in singapore too and at the same time you get a really good sense for what she was probably like as a teenager which was probably pretty insufferable And she doesn't tell you too much about that. You just understand the way that she's telling the story, that 
you can tell what she thinks of who she was at that point in time and then who she like I don't know it, it feels like a compassionate portrait of her past self in a way that I really appreciate while also saying like there were some issues and, and she has some ghosts that she needs to lay to rest. But she also feels compassionate both towards herself and towards the friends that she had roped into making this student film with her. And I really appreciate that balancing act because you don't even really notice that she's done it until after she's managed to pull it off. Like she's not telling you what she's doing. She's just presenting it. And she's presenting it in a way that kind of accumulates meaning over time throughout the movie too. It's it's funny I hadn't thought of the memoir angle, but this is 100% a memoir, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and it, it would have been an equally good pairing with our review of Armageddon Time from a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. where, where with that film, we talked about how, you know, the difficult line in memoir has to walk between, you know, having compassion for one's past self without letting them off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I think Shirkers walks that line perfectly, maybe in ways that Armageddon Time failed to do in, in that... We get a sense for Tan as a person. We uh, we do appreciate her. Like she she mm -hmm. has so much creative verve and energy that it's impossible not to just be like a little happy for for her past self when she finally does get to make her movie. Mm -hmm. But you, she does not pull any punches either, making it clear that uh, she she was. Uh, a jerk and her friends will even tell her that like you know she she was and maybe in some way still is kind of a jerk and tan is self-aware enough and self-effacing enough to leave that in the movie um and allow the audience to see those less flattering aspects of her as well mm -hmm. and i think that also it helps it not feel like kind of a, a bit of self-puffery but something that's genuinely interested in looking with clear eyes at the past and mourning with clear eyes what was what was lost from the past i i think that the the way the film explores how losing the the films to this uh unscrupulous male director who just kind of waltzed off with it mm -hmm. um robbed them of something something not not just of their time but also uh, their voice, how this artistic expression of theirs, to have that just ripped away from them with so unceremoniously, mm -hmm. uh, with no trace left behind, uh, was a, a violation of sorts. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like a very apt pairing with She Said in that way, that even if some justice can be done, some wrongs can be redressed, the wrong still happened in the past and there are some things that can never be regained. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's why I, I come back to this feeling like a ghost story is that just seems so appropriate <laughs> of, of a way of a lens to view the story through where th the past just kind of hangs around. It's always with us. You can get past it or, or reconcile with it, but they're still there. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate how Shirkers, again, just walks that line. It's It does so very elegantly, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think also very intentionally, like Sandy Tan even starts off the movie by saying that we're going to travel backwards in time in order to tell this story. And I appreciate that she trusts the audience to be on board for that ride, even though it feels as though she's telling the story in kind of a, a little bit more of a circular roundabout way, at least at first. I think it's also telling that this is also a story about 
trust, both trust with her collaborators as she's interviewing them now in the present, or at least in 2018, 2017, when this movie was made, and then also the level of trust that she had with them when they first made the original student film in the early 90s, and the level of trust that she had for uh, Georges Cardona, the director of this movie who absconded with the film. He was an instructor for Sandy and her friends at the college that they were taking classes at, and he was the one who sort of nurtured this idea and then shepherded it along and then took over the job as director. And it takes a lot of trust to be able to hand over a project like that to somebody else to see that vision through. And so it's really a huge violation of that trust for somebody to nurture that project and encourage it for so long and to work so hard to get it done and then to just completely disappear. And so I think it's really, I, I don't know, I, I think it's astounding that Sandy Tan is willing to trust other people to make another project <laughs> that is revolving around that exact same topic, but examining it from a different way. And then to be able to trust her friends to tell her straight, like, this is what you were like when you were a teenager, and this is what I think of you now. And to be able to trust them that they're still telling that truth. This is a very truthful movie, I think. And it feels as though she's not trying to obfuscate anything. There's no hidden agenda or anything. The the man who disappeared with the film is is gone now. He can't really do anything to her either. And yeah, I don't know. I just I find it astounding that she's able to tell this story and and then to lay it all at the audience's feet and then also trust us to be able to pick up those pieces as well. It's it's a remarkable balancing act. There, there's something. There, I don't know. There, there's something uniquely compelling also about lost films. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I'm I, I'm actually kind of curious to get your thoughts on this too. I guess I should should speak that for me, there's something uniquely compelling <laughs> about lost films. Just the the idea that there was something that was shot and it had, it, it, you know, films are complex things to assemble. There's sound work, there's, uh, there's music, there's, uh, you know, the picture you have to, yeah, there's all this stuff that goes into a finished film. And when a film is unfinished or incomplete or part of it gets lost, what you're left with is it's it's not a film but it's it still has those some cinematic qualities to it that just make it really compelling mm. and also just makes you mourn like what was lost like what can we never get <laughs> um it, it's sort of like the, the the promised land that you'll never quite reach mm -hmm. um and it I, I just watching some of this uh footage from the original shirkers and just seeing how uh the visuals are so are so compelling like it's very impressive for uh a, i think she was what 19 when she when she made it mm -hmm. a 19 year old shooting on a shoestring budget mm -hmm. in a in a country that had a far fewer film resources than a place like the united states is pretty remarkable mm -hmm. yeah that lost film idea kind of feels like seeing i don't know the rough draft of an author where you can kind of see the seeds of, of something that could potentially be good but at the same time like there are bits and pieces and shirkers where and sandy tan is not precious about this at all either where she acknowledges that she was not a particularly good actor she cast herself in this movie too um but you can still see like the bits and pieces and the flashes of brilliance and i appreciate very much that she's willing to share those parts with a wider audience without 
trying to hide away the parts of her that are not nearly so flattering. It's also a showcase for Singapore, and then it's also a showcase for the people that she had surrounded herself with who were willing to chip in and help out with making that movie. Um, most of my feelings about lost films have to do with lost finished films more than anything else, so I haven't really considered very much about like lost unfinished films in this way, but I'm really glad that you brought that up. I mean, there, there's, there's, a do- there's a documentary that came out in 2009 uh, titled uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's Inferno, and mm. it's about the lost film of Henri-Georges... Sorry, this French name... And it's about the lost film by Henri-Georges Clouseau titled Inferno. Mm. And um, this is another film where uh, there's so much footage that he shot, just crazy optical effects, weird cinematic devices that was supposed to eventually cohere into kind of a Hitchcockian thriller Mm. about infidelity. Uh, It was never obviously finished. And so this documentary kind of attempts to sort of assemble those bits and pieces after the fact into something kind of resembling a finished product Hmm. while also being a documentary about the unfinished product at the same time. It's not an entirely successful movie, Mm -hmm. um, but it does kind of try to do the same thing. I think where Shirker surpasses that film though is that personal element where Tan isn't just trying to make a film about her lost film. She's making a film about the people who made that lost film. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, is the missing ingredient in uh, HGC's Inferno uh, is is that personal element where it's not just about the art, it's also about the people who make the art and the ineffable ways, I guess, that that art expresses things. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just uh, an artifact in a vacuum. It's expressive of a worldview of a place of the people who collaborate to work with it. I think Shirkers does a really good job of getting all those little notes into a very tight, you know, like hundred minute documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also in a way that's willing to show the seams and also show Sandy Tan's hand. And then I think also to kind of travel a little bit backwards in time and take you on this journey as well with her. So this is one of those documentaries that does actually have talking head interviews in a couple of places. And occasionally you'll see somebody walking around in the background to like lay down a glass of water on a table and they don't edit that out. Um, But you also get the introduction for Sandy Tan's friends. You know how like in a typical talking head documentary, you get the person's name and their title and their accolades right up at the front of the documentary. You don't get that here. Instead, when Sandy Tan's friends are first introduced, you just get their names, Jasmine and Sophie. And then at the end of the movie, you end up getting to see where they ended up after they've taken this journey with her. So we find out that Sophie is in a film department teaching film at Vassar College, and that Jasmine is a filmmaker and an activist in her own right in Singapore. Um, And that both of these women have lives and careers that probably like germinated a little bit with the project of Shirkers. 
But Tan can't take credit for any of that. And so she doesn't even try. She just lays out, this is what happened with these two people. And then they went off and, and had brilliant careers of their own. And this isn't really their story, but it is the story about their involvement in this story, if that makes sense. And the way that she bookends the those revelations, at the beginning of the film, we get shots of, for example, a, a car just driving through a tunnel and it's, it's reversed. So we're seeing the car travel backwards as uh, the cars and traffic surrounding them do the same. And then at the end of the film, after we've kind of seen where everybody ends up and what the ultimate fate of the film was, we get those same shots, but they're not reversed. They're moving forward mm -hmm. down the hallway. And I think that's, again, it's just a, a really elegant way for, for Tan to suggest that we go back in, in, into the past to sort of make sense of certain things, but we eventually move forward. Mm -hmm. And that's the note that she ends on. And I I, I don't know, I, I just think that's just, it's a very nice, it's a very nice note to end the film, the film on. Mm -hmm. Just how we get to see both what was lost, but also the way that life moves forward even in the face of that, that loss, that artistic loss. Yeah, I don't really have too much else to add to that. I'm just really glad that you enjoyed this yeah, movie. I thought it was really good. Thanks for recommending it. I, I think I'd heard about this film, but it's like so many other Netflix movies, it kind of is on the service and then just sort of drops off after. Like it just, nobody talks about it anymore. So I'm glad that... Uh, you were able to sort of unearth that and bring it back to my attention. Thanks for doing that. And listeners, if you get the chance to catch up with this movie, we would also love to hear what you think about it as well. Um, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at seabeliefpod. <laughs> yeah, next week, uh, we, we've got a great episode for you. It's Thanksgiving week, but we are going to nevertheless bring you a new episode of Seeing and Believing, probably because we're going to be talking about Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, which both of us are very excited to do. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> big fans of Knives Out. Looking forward to this sequel. I think of Knives Out as a Thanksgiving movie, actually, and maybe it's because it came out right around Thanksgiving. I, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I dragged my whole family to go see it on Thanksgiving as well. So I'm delighted that it's out in theatrical release Thanksgiving weekend. So we'll be able to talk about it and then hopefully you'll get the chance to see it and then get back at us with it i'm looking forward to it for another reason which is that for my selection for the watch list segment and uh, any listeners who want to watch along will get the indescribable joy of catching up with akira kurosawa's 1963 film high and low one of the five or six films he directed that i think are stone cold masterpieces i'm uh, so excited to catch up with this movie and and one that i think is maybe a little bit underseen you know everybody's seen the seven samurais and the rashomons but high and low is a slightly deeper cut that is no less of a great film than those uh great films so looking forward to talking about that one for sure it is streaming on hbo max if you have that service you can find it there or you can rent it on demand uh from amazon as well so very much worth your time in any event. Looking forward to catching up with Toshiro Mifune as well. So, Always watch Toshiro Mifune is a great <laughs> life motto to have. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. 
You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.